and with humans in God's presence, but they were banished because of their rebellion. However, God wants to be in relationship with us, so he chooses one family that he will use to restore the world back into his presence. Now the book is broken up into seven sections and each solution is explored in two sections of the book. The rituals are here, the priests are here, and the purity laws go here. God's presence is like the sun, it's pure power and goodness. And when something mortal and corruptible gets close to such pure power, it's destroyed. And so the word holiness is used in Leviticus to describe God's pure and powerful presence, which like the sun is both good and dangerous. So the point of Leviticus is to show how corrupt Israelites can live near God's goodness without being destroyed. We have to remember that in the ancient world, sacrifices were the main way of buying favor from the gods. But the problem was that those same gods, they're unpredictable, they're fickle, you never know if they're gonna ignore you or they're gonna turn on you. And so it's in this cultural setting that we see Israel's God as totally different. He does get angry about human corruption, but it is never arbitrary. And he loves people. So he provides this clear way for Israel to know with confidence that they are forgiven and that despite their corruption, they are safe to live near his presence. All right, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. Beautiful Sunday, isn't it? Yeah, all right. Um, is Sarah Schlappy here? Yes, she is. If I could have Sarah come up here really quick. Right at the beginning of uh, the service, we're going, to, uh, we're going to commission and pray for our friend and sister, Sarah Schlappy. Sarah is going to be heading on down on the 27th of this month to uh, Haiti, and she's actually going down, and this isn't your first rodeo. No. no. How many times have you been? This is my second. Second time, um, and, uh, and second time in Haiti total? Yes. Okay, second time in Haiti. She's going to be working there till, the, till July 31st, and she's going to be working primarily in, uh, uh, in a school, helping this Christian school teach children um, English and, and comprehension as far as reading and stuff like that. Um, and the goal is to not only just be an English teacher, but also to communicate the gospel clearly. On top of that, she's going to be working in a couple of children's homes, foster care homes? or uh, children's, children's homes. Children's homes. And so what we want to do is whenever at NBC we see someone who who's like listening to God's leading and saying, let's do this. I want to step out. We want to pray for that person and commission them. And so will you join me in praying for Sarah? And she, again, she's leaving Tuesday, Tuesday for Haiti. And so uh, be in prayer for, for her. Also, whenever, whenever God's doing, um, doing things, there's always complications from our enemy. And we know that the enemy has been alive and well working in Haiti as a whole, but specifically with this school. And so we're just going to pr pray for God's protection and his provision for Sarah. So will you join me? Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for Sarah. I thank you for her courage to trust you. And Lord, it's kind of goofy to say it takes courage to trust you. We know that we can trust you, but thank you for her obedience. Lord, I pray that um, you bless her. You bless, bless her, her faithfulness, that you actually um, not only go before her, we know that you're already at work in Haiti, but you actually uh, pave the road for her to be able to communicate clearly the gospel, that you give her encouragement when she's down, when she hits brick walls, when she gets frustrated, God, that she will experience and encounter um, a profound amount of strength that she knows comes from you. Lord, I pray that um, as much of an impact representing you in Haiti, that um, you'll use uh, the Haitian brothers and sisters around her to impact her, that she'll also come back here, um, not only uh, someone who's been used as an ambassador, but someone who's been impacted and blessed. 
and we'll give you thanks for all that. It's in Jesus' name and for your glory that we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, Sarah. All right. Yeah, talk to Sarah afterwards. And so we wanted to make sure uh, that the last sermon she heard at Manuka Bible Church was a timely and pertinent and relevant one, so we picked the book of Leviticus. All right. Leviticus is a book that a lot of people avoid because it's weird. It's, it's a book that if you are someone who reads the Bible, and you're like, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to read the whole thing. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You, you do that. You're like, Genesis, Exodus. And then you get to Leviticus, and you're like, whoa, this stuff is freaky. And this is weird. And so people avoid Leviticus because it's way too bloody or way too boring. And so people oftentimes, they'll say that they're going to read through the whole Bible in a year or two years or whatever, and they, they say, they tell their pastor that they did it, and they really didn't. They skipped over Leviticus because they freaked out. And you're going to see why. We're going to read the, just the first chapter, and you're going to go, whoa, this is in the Bible? This is part of the scripture that's God-breathed and useful for me, for teaching and training in, in my righteousness, this stuff? There is a reason why we're going to get into this. I'm so excited about this, this series. It's just going to be through the summer uh, that we're going to just kind of do an overview of this book. But Leviticus, it's not the first book of the Bible. What is? Genesis, right? Okay, then after Genesis is what? Exodus. And then what? Leviticus. So if we're going to know what Leviticus is all about, we have to know what the prequel is. The prequel to Leviticus is Exodus. And if you don't understand what's happening in Exodus, you really aren't going to get Leviticus. See, in Exodus, it starts off with God freeing his people from Pharaoh and Egypt, hundreds of years of slavery, and all of a sudden they're liberated. And they're liberated to be a people of God and a nation of God, and they're going to have their own property. It's, I mean, they're going, to be, they're going to have their own government with God as their king. It's, it's going to be epic, and they're all excited about it. And so 50, 50 days into the journey out of Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai. And this is a big deal. This is where they get the Ten Commandments, but not just Ten Commandments. They get all of the commandments from God, laying out the law, laying out God's perspective. And, and the big idea here is this, Mount Sinai is a wedding. Mount Sinai is a wedding where God is expressing his vows to his people. I'm going to be your God. I will be your provider. I'm going to be the one who's, who's in control and your protector. And the people, you're going to be our, my only God. I'm going to be faithful to you. There's going to be no one else. The faithfulness of this relationship, of this covenant will be secure and solid and that happens at the, mount, at the top of Mount Sinai. But by the time Moses gets down to the bottom of Mount Sinai, the people have already broken their favor and faith with the God who just rescued them 50 days prior by worshiping false gods, the Baals and everything else. And so God is absolutely brokenhearted. We see the wrath of God show up here. We see the frustration of God show up here. But what we don't see is God saying, okay, that's it. I'm kicking the whole thing to the curb. We're gonna have flood part two, just wipe them all out. He doesn't do that. Because what God said on Mount Sinai, he's going to be faithful to. He wants a relationship with his people. And so he lays out uh, this idea of, I want, to find, I want you to know that I'm with you, and I'm directing you, and I'm guiding you. And so he sets up this tabernacle system. This is like the pre-temple temple. It was the RV temple. It was a mobile temple. Like wherever they were going in the desert, they could pick it up, put it, and they could know that God was with them. They could sacrifice to God. They could be with God all through this temple. But when we get to the end of Exodus, there's a big, glaring, embarrassing problem. Moses can't go in there. He can't go in there because of the major drama and issues between his leadership and God and all the people in God. And so because of that, not only is he not allowed to go into the presence of God, but, but no one else can. And so that's, and you get that at the, that's at the very end of Exodus. And Leviticus just reminds us of how embarrassing this is because the very first verse says it. 
the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He can't go in. We were told he can't go in in the end of Exodus, but, but in the book, beginning of Leviticus, which was written by Moses, Moses lets it be known, I still can't get in there. Something happens between Leviticus 1.1 and the next book, Numbers 1.1. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but Leviticus 1.1 says, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from outside, from the tent of meeting. By the time we get to Numbers 1.1, it says this, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. Something happened. Leviticus worked. God's desire to have a relationship and proximity with his people, all the things that he's laying out, prescription-wise, play-by-play in the book of Leviticus actually takes place. And his goal of bringing his people back near, his goal of of doing what would happen in the garden, of, of actually having that relationship with man was being restored and it was going forward. This is why this is our story. This is why Leviticus is something that is practical and pertinent for Christians who are New Testament believers because we could believe in Jesus and we could believe in what he did on the cross. But if we don't get why that was a big deal, to the first hearers, we're only getting part of the story. There's a whole lot in Leviticus that is something that you're not going to apply today. But there's a whole lot of in Leviticus that if you don't understand foundationally, you will not see the beauty and the majesty and the impact of the cross with quite as vibrant of color. Let's go ahead and, and look at the first chapter of this book. And so if you've got your Bible, open up to Leviticus. If you've got your notes, um, feel free to take notes. The center section of your notes, we're actually going to skip over. um, But we're going to be just in chapter 1, focusing on this beginning. What we see happen, um, Leviticus is broken down symmetrically. If you do have like physical notes on the flip side, you can see how it's symmetrically laid out. Where it starts off with ritual sacrifice. And then it goes into talking about the priests. And then it talks about purity. And then... The center of the book, 16 and 17, chapter 16 and 17 is the Day of Atonement. And then it goes up to purity. And then it goes to priests. And then it goes to ritual um, feasts and celebrations. So what we're going to do is we're going to ping pong from the beginning to the end of the book throughout this series, looking and seeing what God is doing and ending right there on the Day of Atonement, this day when everyone could say, even the stuff that I, I wasn't even aware of that I've done, God is taking care of. But it starts with the first seven chapters, which are ritual sacrifices. What I'm about to read to you are the things that make people say, I will never read this book again. Let's read it. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd... He is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. He's to lay his hand on its head, the head of the burnt offering. It will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. We're going to talk about that word in just a second. Verse 5. He is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons... so for the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides of the entrance of the tent of meeting. Okay, hold on. What? What? I mean, this is like Bram Stoker Dracula recipe book so far. Okay, and we're taking blood and we're just sprinkling it. This is not sanitary. And this is like, this has got curtains in it, and you're like sprinkling it around fabric. I don't understand. Let's keep going. Verse six. 
He's to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the burning wood. That's on the altar. He's to wash the inner parts and the legs with water. And the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Okay, what? What? So I'm going to gut this thing, and then I'm going to wash its innards so that I could burn them. Does this make sense to you? No. Keep going. Verse 10. The offering is a burnt offering. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, he's to offer a male without defect. He is to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle its blood against the altar on all sides. He's to cut it into pieces, and the priests shall arrange them, including the head and the fat, on the burning wood that is the altar. If, if this feels repetitive, it's because... It's repetitive. Verse 13, he is to wash the inner parts and the legs with water, and the priest is to bring all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Verse 14, if the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, this is where it gets even weirder, he is to offer a dove or a young pigeon. Verse 15, the priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off the head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out of it on the side of the altar. He's to remove the crop with its contents and throw it to the east side of the altar where the ashes are. Like you do. He shall tear it open by the wings, not severing it completely. And then the priest shall burn it on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Okay, so I know that you're like, listen, I believe the Bible and I'm going to apply all of that this week. I found three or four memory verses in what you just read. Okay, we need to understand that the important thing in context when you're reading Scripture is to understand what is God saying. I, I can't apply something unless I know what God is saying and who he's saying it to. This is, he's saying this to a group of people who are ex-slaves. And he's saying, you have been conditioned to follow a man as a king and as a God. You have, not, you have been my people, but I want you to be my people. And I want to help you with something that's going to help you condition yourself to understand of our relationship and how to make things right when you go off the grid. And you will. And so for the, the, he opens the whole thing up. The first seven chapters of this book are written to help us understand that through sacrifice. Sacrifice is not something that's new. Um, sacrifices and burnt sacrifices were something we saw the people doing back in Genesis, Cain and Abel offered sacrifices to God. Noah offers a sacrifice to God. So Leviticus is more of like, we're going to be super specific on what we're talking about it because you've had hundreds of years of paganism washing over you. We want to make it very, very clear. The first, basically, if you wanted to break them into two parts, there's, there's two kinds of sacrifices, lots of different kinds of sacrifices, but they broke down into two sections. One was thank you. It was a way to help the people say thank you. Sacrifices were like this giant, like, thank you card, which they don't sell at Jewel, so I had to make this one. I, I'm like, of course, Jewel's going to have one of these obnoxious, ginormous thank you cards, but they don't. So I want you to use your imagination. Offerings, half of the offerings were, were offerings that were intended to just come to God and say, I want to tell you how thankful I am to you. The book of Romans talks about how where people go off and absolutely ruin their life, is the base of it is by not acknowledging God for who he is and not thanking him for what he's done. In Leviticus, there's all of these offerings, sacrifices that people are bringing to God individually, 
Not, not like, okay, have the priest do this. I'm going to individually do this morning and night just to say thank you to God. Just to, just to let this pleasing, that God actually takes joy for me thanking him. Saying, I've done all of this. I've done all this work, but I want to bring you a portion of this. And not, and not just in what I'm bringing to you and, and offering. I want this to spill over to my whole life. So I'm, I'm living with gratitude. Many of the sacrifices were simply a way to say thank you, but there were also sacrifices that were intended to say, I'm sorry, the burnt purification and restitution offerings. And this was different. This was something where I wasn't simply going and telling God how grateful I am. I'm actually recognizing that God and I are off. There's something that's broken with us. And so what God does in his grace is sets up a system so that people are able to walk in the favor of God, knowing that the thing that made them guilty is not hanging around their neck any longer like an albatross, but that they're actually freed from it. And this was the important thing. What happened when a person came and they would actually come and they'd recognize that my sin, the thing that's broken favor between me and the holiness of God, it costs something. My evil, the evil between me and God, ultimately will lead to my death. But God has made a way for that not to take place, that ultimately I'm going to have life. But something has to pay the price. And so in an effort of a way for, for my death not to take place, something else would be identified to take the place for me. And so this is where the animal sacrifice comes in. Now, everyone did animal sacrifices back in the day because people understood guilt. They realized, I've done something wrong. I don't want to pay the price for it. Someone or something does. And so to appease the gods, I'm going to sacrifice this animal. The problem is, is that the pagan world had no idea what, how much was enough. What God does in Leviticus is this. I'm going to graciously help you understand Enough is enough. I'm not going to say, just, I'm not going to, like the pagans who have no idea what they're supposed to bring to their God, they simply sacrifice an animal, but I still feel guilty. Well, then I'm going to go ahead and I'm actually, I'm going to cut myself. If I cut myself, then at least then the gods will know that I am, I'm, I'm, I'm remorseful for what I've done, but I still feel guilty. Maybe if I sacrifice another person or a child, then the gods will be appeased. What God says is none of that. That is not how we work. I'm going to give you a play-by-play -play system that is mitigated and, mar and, and organized so that you do this and no more. On top of that, most of us here, don't, we don't slaughter our own animals um, to eat. We, we go to Jewel because someone at Jewel has slaughtered our animals and so we eat them. I'm imagining someone's in the back just you know, doing all the slaughtering. Do they do? No, well, I don't know. Anyway, but what happens in cultures that they actually do slaughter their own animals um, it's something very interesting. If you grew up on a farm and there's like a, a cow or, or there's a, 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 you know, a sheep or something that you're slaughtering for food, when that plate comes before you, you don't waste a whole lot of that. The reason you don't waste a whole lot of that is because you know that your food had a face and a name. You knew this before you're eating. And so it's like to waste would be, don't you understand? This was a life. I'm eating this, it's great, but it was a life before it got to me. It cost something. And so in sacrifice, what God is helping people understand is your wrongs cost something. This isn't just an arbitrary sacrifice. This sacrifice had a face, it had a name, and it was yours. It wasn't someone else. You didn't, just, didn't go to the market and buy it. It was someone, it was something that you actually had. You saw this animal, you knew this animal's name, and so you understood the cost. But the, the amazing thing is that not only was it cost, it was complete. The goal was atonement. And what atonement means is that the blood of this animal 
When that person, when it says that they put their hand on the animal before they slaughtered it, that mean, what they were saying is, the wrong that I have done, I'm identifying it now with you. You are now carrying the wrong. And then that animal, which did nothing wrong, was sacrificed. And that, the blood of that animal symbolically let everyone know, this is covered. This is covered. And it had to be a certain kind of animal. It wasn't just an animal that you were going to put down. God was conditioning in the people, like only these animals. These are the clean animals. These ones are not. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But what God's doing is he's conditioning and saying, listen, if you're broken, you can't take something else that's broken to make you whole. If you're dirty on the inside, you can't take something else that's dirty to make you pure. If you're broken, you have to take something that is whole in order to make you whole. If you're dirty, you have to take something that is pure in order to make you pure. Your sins have separated you, but there's a way to make atonement, to cover over this. So when God sees me, he sees the blood. He sees the sacrifice that was laid, that that something was actually paid the price. And the effect was this. A person walked away from this knowing, I'm no longer walking in guilt. I'm now walking in the favor of God. Between God and I, we're good. And that actually, because I've been cosmically forgiven from an amazingly wonderful sovereign God, this effect actually bleeds into the rest of my life where now I'm like walking with more grace towards others. God's given me so much grace that now I'm actually going to express that to other people. God's done something so huge for me, I'm actually living my life out like a thank you card to him more and more. I'm a grateful, grace-filled person, and it's phenomenal. But it didn't work. If this was the goal, it didn't work. And, and the people in the, the Old Testament prophets talked about it not working. The prophet Hosea, God's talking to his people saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Which I'm like, wait, hold on a sec. Leviticus is all about you desiring sacrifice, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. I thought you did desire sacrifice. No, God says, I desired mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. The burnt offering was supposed to do something. The reason that it's burnt is that it's completely consumed. You're watching all of your guilt dissolve in front of you. So you're walking away from that with a heart that's reconnected to me. The word for mercy is chesed in Hebrew, which means heart. God's saying, this was a vehicle. These were vehicles to make our heart connected, not just for you to do a ritual so that you can kind of do this and then walk away unchanged. You're a total jerk to your spouse. You made a sacrifice to God and you, you did the sacrifice ritualistically. You went back home and you were a jerk to your spouse again. That's not the point. The point was that we had a heart, we had a, have a heart that's reconnected and that is what I'm after. Isaiah, Isaiah, right out of the gate in the beginning of Isaiah, the prophet says, stop. Okay, just stop. Stop it. This isn't working anymore. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. This whole religious system that you're doing is worthless because your heart isn't in it. It's not making you more grateful, more generous. It's not making you more pure. It's actually just giving you a way to keep on going on a a hamster wheel where you're still God. Isaiah continues to talk this through, but he, he, he kind of starts to paint a picture of the fact that one day there's going to be someone who's going to take care of all of this. That actually, there, it's not going to be a lamb that's going to suffer and die. It's not going to be a lamb that's going to actually take this atonement and make this atonement possible. But that there's going to be someone sent by God, a suffering servant. By the time we get to the New Testament, we realize that it's Jesus. 
And what Jesus does is he actually steps into become the sacrificial lamb. Jesus, and all through the New Testament, paints the picture that the reason that we no longer have to do sacrifices anymore, the reason that we no longer have to bring a spotless lamb without defect is that the spotless lamb without defect, God himself, stepped in and took for us what we couldn't take on our own. God, instead of destroying us because we're full of evil, took the evil and the death upon himself for us so that we could walk away with God's favor. That what Jesus did was he actually accomplished the atonement to replenish us. So that his blood is something that when God sees us, he sees the sacrifice of Jesus. We're covered by it. It's something that we actually can bask in, the, the reality that that is something that's actually good. The worst day in human history was one of the sweetest. Because now, as, as people who've repented, can, we can walk away recognizing that God has made the ultimate sacrifice and he's paid for that for us. So because Jesus did this, there's a couple, there's two realities that we can walk in. First off, we're able to experience God's favor. And this is a tough one because a lot of Christians, even though they've repented of their sins, they're not walking in God's favor. They're pretty miserable people, right? Do you know any miserable Christians? I do. Sometimes I'm a miserable Christian. I'm like, I'm like I believe this stuff. I know it. I know it's true. I believe, I believe in Jesus. But I can still walk in this like, Ugh. what Jesus intended for me was that because of his sacrifice, I'm no longer bringing a sacrifice. I'm actually flashing back to him as sacrifice. And I'm saying, Jesus, instead of this going to me, you took it upon yourself for me. Repentance is saying all the stuff that led me to this moment where I have to say to you that I am totally depraved, I'm totally set apart from you, that you actually paid for all of that, I can actually walk as a person who's refreshed in your favor. And that's what Paul, Paul, or Peter was saying in Acts when he's telling a bunch of people about this. After Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he's talking to the people who crucified Jesus. And he says, this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent that. So he's telling a bunch of people who actually were pro-crucifying Jesus, listen, you might think that there's no hope for you. You might be thinking that if Jesus is actually God and he rose again, then you're, you're toast. But in him, this sacrifice is for anyone who turns to him. And he says this, this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then. Repent is another way of saying, okay, I'm turning around. I'm not just going to do the hamster wheel of like this process. I'm turning my life over to his, his sacrifice. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, number one, and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. You actually could be someone who actually is walking in the refreshment, the favor of God. And the cool thing is, is that that spreads. Because just like the original hearers, if you recognize you've been cosmically forgiven on that level, that doesn't stop there. I'm saved. Woohoo! Nothing's changed. It doesn't stop there. Once you recognize that, then all of a sudden that leads on over to the fact that you not only are experiencing the favor of God, but you're able to express the generous gratitude that God has given you. You can, you, if Jesus is taking, if I'm no longer, if Nooka Bible Church is not like, okay, everyone go out and find someone's goat or bird. We know how to do this. We've read Leviticus. So bring the sacrifices here so we can make up for what we've done. We could actually make atonement for our sins. 
We don't do that anymore because of the fact that Jesus has taken care of all of the legal problem that we had. He's taken care of it all. And because of that, we are, we're opened up to a newfound reality of walking in God's favor and walking as grateful people. Let me give you an example. If Chris, right over here, Chris, go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, Chris is a thief. Not really, but let's just say he was. All right, let's say that I actually own something valuable. Just use your imagination. And, and he, like crazy valuable. And he, Chris is like, dude, I want that. And so Chris steals it from me. Can't believe he did that. He did it. He stole it from me. The cops find him and they arrest him. He's going to do time because whatever it was that he stole was crazy valuable. Again, use your imagination. So now he's going to be doing time and the cops say, not only that, you have to return the thing that you stole. You have to make this right with Errol McFadden. And Chris is like, fine. So he gives it back, whatever it was, this crazy valuable thing. And so it's good with me. He's doing time. So he's doing time by the state that everything's just and good. But there's a problem. He didn't, by doing time in jail and giving me back what he stole, it didn't fix the problem. The problem, when Chris decided to sin, when Chris decided to steal, he poisoned something. Chris and I will never be the same. Even if I forgive him, there's something that's like, like, like residual poison all around me and him. And not only that, my whole family is looking at Chris differently. Yeah, that's Chris, the guy who stole from dad. Their poison, that one decision, not only poisoned, not only took care, put him in jail and made him have to give it back, it poisoned all these relationships, but not just us. Everyone in his family are now poisoned by the same vandalism that that one act caused. What we have in Christ is this. Jesus takes care of the legal reality. He took the punishment. He took the punishment for you and for me, but he didn't stop there. He brought to us the wrongdoer, freedom. But he didn't stop there. Just like those priests would sprinkle that blood as a way of symbolically saying, this sin has poisoned the land itself. And we're symbolically saying that we're asking for God to make that right too. What Jesus did not only made things right between us, but it started to cause this chain reaction in our life where because the legal nature of that is already taken care of, I don't have to bring any more sacrifices to God. What am I left with? I'm left with a life that is more grateful, more generous. And this spills into everything. When, I, when I'm actually, I'm not stingy with my time with people. I care about them. With my family, I, I try, I, I'm working to, to lean in and express love that wasn't there before. When, I, when I'm giving to church, I'm not giving at church because I'm legally bound. Like, this is going to make up for that. Or this is going to purchase what Jesus did on the cross. No. When we give in church, we're actually saying, I'm coming from a place of gratitude and joy. God has set me free. And if he's set me free, I'm going to be on mission for him. That what took place here actually starts to lead into every other part of my life. And Jesus said that. He said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Step in and live out the thanks of your life, what would it look like if your life was a thank you card to God? Like, what would Monday look like? If you lived Monday like it was a thank you card to God, what would you write in here? What actions would be in here that say, God, I just want to thank you with this? What would happen if that was your story? What Jesus did on the cross gave us the ability to experience the favor of God are you walking in that favor? He gave us the opportunity to express the generosity 
because it's spread into the whole of our life and we can walk with that. And this is what Leviticus is pointing to. And this is the gospel, which brings me to rabbit stories. The past two weeks have been really, really heavy for, um, for me and my family. Um, I've had to, I've had the, the really um, painful honor of officiating two funerals in the past two weeks for toddlers. A 13-month-old and a 19-month-old. One in Arizona and one in the Red Room just this past week. That's, that's tough to communicate God's goodness when you've lost a child. But it's also tough to help all the other children, brothers and sisters and cousins who are weeping, understand a picture of the gospel. And so what I turned to was one of the best combo packs of the gospel I could communicate to children. And, and there are two books, and you probably have seen these two books, The Runaway Bunny and Guess How Much I Love You. Have you seen these books? Yeah. If you, if you have them around your house, they're like the cardboard ones that are really awesome if, you th- if you're a sibling and you throw them at your sibling because they hurt. These two books together paint one of the best pictures of the gospel. And I believe it's what Leviticus was pointing towards. In The Runaway Bunny, you've got this, this really terrible bunny rabbit. It says this, or the narrator says this, once there was a little bunny who wanted to run away. He said to his mother, I am running away. Well, if you run away, said his mother, I will run after you, for you are my little bunny. Well, if you run after me, said the little bunny, I will become a fish in a trout stream, and I will swim away from you. If you become a fish in a trout stream, said his mother, I will become a fisherman, and I will fish for you. And throughout the rest of the book, this is how it goes. The little bunny says, oh yeah? Well, then I'm going to become a rock on the highest mountain. And the mom says, then I'm going to become a mountain climber, and I will climb to you, and I will find you. Well, I'm going to be a a tightrope walker in a circus so high you can't get to me. Well, then I will become a trapeze walker, and I will walk across the air to get you. And over and over again, the mom says, oh, you're going to do this? I'm going to step into that to retrieve you, to bring you back home. And in the end of the book, that's what the bunny realizes. Well, if you're going to go to all that work, I might as well just stay here and be your little bunny. And the mother says, good, here's a carrot. (laughs) The next book is, is pretty phenomenal, but also has a terrible little child. This little bunny rabbit um, is trying to get its, in a a cute way, trying to get its dad to understand how much he loves him and that he loves him more than his dad could possibly love him back. And so he pulls down his ears and he tries to tell him, listen, I want to tell you how much I love you. He says, I love you this much. And the little nut brown hair uh, stretches out his arms, stretching out his arms as wide as they could go. Big nut brown hair had even longer arms. But I love you this much, he said. Hmm, that's a lot thought little nut brown hair. And throughout the rest of this book, you have that same story happening over and over and over again. You have this little bunny rabbit saying, well, I, could ju- I love you as high as I could jump. And then the dad saying, well, I love you as high as I can jump. Well, I love you all the way to the moon. And that's when the dad puts the little bunny rabbit to bed and says, well, that's very, very high. And just as the little bunny rabbit's going to sleep, the dad says, I love you all the way to the moon and back. And that is something that um, is actually, that, that line right there was inscribed on one of the little tombstones um, when we were in the cemetery to a little child. And this was a book that the parent had read their kid and they wanted to let their kid know the, the depth and the, the length and the scope 
of their love and how much greater it could ever possibly be. And this is why I bring this up. This is our story as well. Each one of us in here is the runaway bunny. Each one of us have rebelled against God and we've run away from him. And that's called sin. And scripture describes this as being something that not only takes, it not only causes an expiration on our life, death, but it actually lowers the quality of our life as long as we're alive. That distance from God is something that poisons our very reality. Our desire to run away from God is something we were not only born into, but we consciously decide to do. And again, the end of our story is death. But the God of the Bible says that that's not the way the story should end. And so he does very much what the mother does in the story and says, if that's what's happening, if that's where you are, I will go there. Scripture says that we were dead in our transgressions when Christ found us. That means this, that if we have run away from God like the runaway bunny, if we have run away and we are dead in our sins as humans, what would God do? He would become a human and step into our death to bring us back home. The very same reality that that book portrays is something that you and I own if you're in Christ. And if we have that internal reality of saying, well, I I just need to make up for this. Maybe if I'm I'm good enough, I could like earn this. If if I go to church enough, I can make make this right. Or I'm gonna be moral enough so that I I earn what God's doing. And all we're doing is like, God, I, I got this much to bring. And God's like, this is not enough. This is not, there's nothing that you could possibly do to make up for all the wrong you've done. But the good news is that you don't have to because I have. And very much like that second book, Christ says, I have stretched out my arm for you on the cross and I love you this much. There's not a single thing that you have done that you can make up for. But I did. When I died on the cross for you, I atoned for your sins, I wiped them clean, And I brought favor between you and God, not just so that you can internalize that, not just so that you become a more religious person, but so that you would actually go from that place of refreshing to a lifetime filled with the gratitude that comes from knowing that you've been redeemed, that your whole life is a thank you card to God. You can have joy in the midst of the garbagiest, most messed up circumstances because you realize that this God that that you are in the family of has renewed you, that the ultimate sacrifice that could possibly be made was not made by you, but instead, just like John the Baptist said when he saw his cousin Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Are you covered? Are you covered by Christ's sacrifice? Have you allowed that reality to speak into your hope that you're walking in the favor of God and let that bleed into the joy that leads to a grateful life. When we are experiencing that same kind of grace and gratitude and joy to those around you. When we come into communion, we are remembering what took place back here. That we don't have to bring a sacrifice because Jesus was a sacrifice. We take the bread and we take the cup. If you're a follower of Jesus, this table is open to you, even if you're not from this church. What I want to encourage you to do is that in the next few moments, take the bread, take the cup, exit your row on the left-hand sides, find a table that's nearest you, bring them back to your chairs, and spend some time contemplating, am I walking in the favor of God from what Christ has accomplished? Have I allowed that to bleed into the gratitude and joy or my offering that I'm bringing God is a life of thanks?
Spend a few moments doing that. We'll take the elements together in just a moment. Go ahead.